thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. You're listening to a podcast from 702 and Cape Talk. 702 and Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. 18 minutes to 10 o'clock. Good morning to you, Chris. Thank you for joining us. Hey, good morning, Reedy. Hi, everybody. Thank you. From yesterday, I was inundated with, um, with with tweets. I mean, in between the commentary about the State of the Nation address, which happened here in South Africa last night, uh, many people did not miss the news and they've been dying to hear your take on the discovery of gravitational waves. Well, people are saying this is Nobel Prize winning stuff, and I'm, I'm sure they're not wrong. Um, this is a theory that goes back to Einstein. And Einstein, about 100 years ago, published his theory of general relativity. And having been uncomfortable with what gravity was, because Newton had told us that big things attract other big things across space, people since him, including Michael Faraday, said, well, there must be something which is conveying this attraction between these things. And along comes Einstein and says, well, actually, I think we're thinking about this all wrong. We need to consider space to be this fabric, which we'll call space-time. And things that have a lot of mass must distort space-time. And if they bend space-time, they should be able to make other things roll towards each other, because they're almost like rolling down a hill in the bent space-time. But the other thing that... uh, Uh, Einstein said was, well, if you've got this fabric of space-time and something big from a gravitational perspective happens in space-time, it should create ripples that will spread out through space-time and they should effectively carry a signature of what that event was and they should also be detectable and they should ripple through space at the speed of light. Now, people since have been looking for these things and they've not really had any way to detect them effectively, but now this week scientists at LIGO, which is the Um, It's the Interferometry Observatory in America. Effectively, what they're doing is bouncing laser beams. They take a laser beam, they split the beam and put it down two arms of a a very long V. Each arm is is a couple of kilometres long. And the light goes along the arm, bounces off mirrors at the other end of the arm and comes back to where it started. If the two light waves arrive back exactly where they started at exactly the same time, they cancel each other out. If, on the other hand, some gravitational waves have come through, they have distorted the space that the, uh, the, the path of light is passing through. The light will take slightly longer or less long to make its journey, so it will arrive back at the start point before the beam in the other arm of the V, and as a result, the two light waves will no longer cancel out and you'll get a little signal. And that, this week, is what scientists say they have discovered, and uh, this relates to a couple of black holes bashing into each other and merging to make one massive, massive, massive black hole about 1.3 billion light years uh, ago, sorry, years ago. And so mm-hmm. that uh, light, the, sorry, the gravitational waves have been spreading across space ever since, and these researchers at LIGO have managed to detect them. And this proves that Einstein was right. It proves theories about gravitational waves uh, originating from black holes are right. And it also ushers in a whole new era of doing astronomy, because now we can interrogate the universe and see events and understand events happening way back in history and all over the universe 
in a way that doesn't involve light waves. And this is the really exciting thing, that you've now got a new way to understand the universe around us because light doesn't go through things like the Earth, but gravitational waves will. So we'll be able to understand a lot more and, uh, and about space's rich tapestry from this confirmation this week. Mm. I'm also fascinated by the LIGO. Is that what you, how you say it? I mean, what is it that makes it the most sophisticated detector, Chris, and what else can it do? Well, as, I, as I've explained, this is an interferometry device. The, the, what does the that mean? Sorry. Is, well, it's an advanced <laughs> laser interferometry gravitational observatory, which is why they call it LIGO. Okay. The, the idea, this is a purpose-built experiment to detect gravitational waves. You can't really do anything else with it, but it's to give you an insight into how incredible this is, mm. the distortion of the light path that a gravitational wave will cause in the arms of that V I mentioned are so tiny that they're equivalent to a thousandth of the nucleus of an atom difference that it can detect. That is like you being able to detect a difference in the distance between here and the next nearest star, which is about four light years away, with the resolution or to an accuracy smaller than a human hair. Okay. So this is an incredible piece of engineering just to make it work and the fact that they've now got these results and, and actually quite funnily enough um, if you read the commentaries on this they turned the machine on and immediately started seeing data and they thought something must be wrong because the uh, results that came in the signatures they were picking up off the machine looked so perfect that someone thought it must be some kind of test signal or something so they then spent months checking that what they were seeing was the real deal and, and of course it is and so congratulations to them well fantastic okay so Brian uh, you're calling us from Lensdowne good morning Good morning, Reddy. Good morning, scientists. Mm. Uh, just uh, back down to earth again. I, um, I'm just curious to know what the UHT process is in long life milk. UHT process. Okay. Um, what are we drinking? <laughs> and because the taste is definitely not the natural milk taste. Yeah, okay. good question. What are we drinking? Um, the answer, Brian, is it's. Um, heated to a higher temperature when you pasteurize something what Pasteur discovered is that you heat something to a higher a high enough temperature 60 something degrees sufficiently quickly that you don't denature the proteins in the milk and as a result distort the flavor texture and taste too much but you do denature the microorganisms and destroy them when you heat the milk to a much higher temperature you destroy the microorganisms viability and any of the other chemicals that might break down the milk but in the process you also do change the structure of the proteins a little bit milk has obviously got a lot of protein in it and because temperature affects the structure of proteins you rearrange some of those proteins a bit when you heat them no different to cooking really and that's why food tastes different when it's fresh raw compared with when it's been cooked and this makes the milk less likely to go off in the long term it has a longer shelf life but there is of course a taste decrement thank you very much brian uh, let's go to kahiso in rodeport good morning hello yes kahiso good morning hi my question is um i i have an injury in my hand that's taking a while to heal so i'm wondering um about how the body heals if i move my hand around it hurts a bit more and if I leave it, uh, it doesn't hurt, but then it's taking a while to heal. Uh, does your body heal faster if you move it around and make it hurt? Or does it heal faster if you leave it and don't use it? Uh, I'll let you know the that's a great question, especially for, for athletes. It is a great question. Do you question. exercise the, injury, the injured part just to keep it warm and going, or you just leave it and let time do its thing? The answer is... 
It depends, and both may be true under certain circumstances. On the one hand, if you've got some kind of orthopaedic injury, like a broken bone, then you can argue that exercising this is probably going to be a bad idea because what needs to happen is the broken bone ends need to knit together because new bone has to grow to fill in the broken gaps between the bones and then remodel itself to be really strong. This takes time and if you move the bone around then it uh, interrupts that process which is why a plaster cast is usually applied to big broken bones to stabilise them, support them and stop them moving, hold them in position while that healing process happens. On the other hand, as anyone who's ever had to wear a plaster cast knows, you get really stiff in your joints that aren't being moved and your muscles become incredibly weak because you don't use them. You get disuse atrophy. And this is a downside of having to immobilise something. So if you don't have to immobilise something completely, modest amounts of movement are actually quite good because they stop stiffening, they keep muscles strong, and as long as you don't overdo it, then in fact you also promote blood flow to an area and if you promote blood flow which includes fresh blood coming in and nasty old dirty blood going out again this increases the rate at which things heal up so i would argue that both apply under different circumstances and the right amount of exercise or the right amount of movement and physiotherapy to a damaged area is the right thing to do but doing too much or too little can be bad Okay, thank you so much. And uh, who else, who came in first? We, we've had this question before, but it won't hurt because we've had so much rain in several parts of South Africa, thank goodness, at last. But Tony in Fontainebleau, good morning. Tony? Good morning, Tony. Hello there. I wanted to find out from Chris, can you use a rain gauge to estimate or to measure the amount of evaporation, water evaporation? Oh, hi, Tony. Well, the way a rain gauge Hello. works, of course, is this this is a pot which is collecting rain that falls into it, and that rain coalesces in a measuring device which is calibrated in such a way that it gives you an idea as to how much rain is falling on each square metre of ground. Now, that does not measure the evaporation from the ground because warmth from the sun and the air heating the ground gives energy to water in the ground and also plants growing out of the ground take water out of the ground and transpire it this free water water molecules go up into the atmosphere they can come down as dew again and you might be able to measure how much dew is landing on your rain gauge but you wouldn't have an index of evaporation you'd have to come up with a different way of measuring that other than a rain gauge i'm afraid let's go to um Michael, Michael, you are calling us from Santon. Good morning. Hi, good morning. And a question that's really been baffling me. I'm a great star watcher, but why is the light from stars seen as pinpricks to us? Why is it not more diffused <laughs> like the light from the sun, for argument's sake? Nice. Oh, hi, Michael. Yes. Well, the reason for this is that we, we know that when light sources are close to you, the light is spreading out like a bubble all around the object that you're looking at. But if I take that object to sufficiently far away, then the light rays that are coming in my direction to all intents and purposes, because they've travelled such vast distances, are now travelling to me in parallel lines. Um, if I were to go closer to that star, it would look like our sun in the sky with an, a giant ball of radiation spreading out in all directions. But from a great distance, only a small number of those light rays, relatively speaking, are coming in this direction. And so over those vast distances, the ones that are interacting with us can be considered to be travelling parallel to each other and therefore you're not seeing something that, that's spreading out um, in that way Okay, and Carl in Boxburg, good morning Morning, how are you guys? We good, Carl, your question? 
Um, I'd like to know if swimming in a salt-chlorinated swimming pool has an impact on dehydrating your body if you're training for long periods versus swimming in a normal chlorinated pool. Oh, hi, Carl. Well, the answer is your skin is a really excellent barrier. And the, the skin keeps the inside of your body as you and the outside world outside of you. And although you sweat across your skin to lose temperature, the sweating is not going to be greatly affected by the thing you're swimming through. If you're in water, then it's not going to make a huge amount of difference. So therefore, I would argue it probably will make very little difference to your body composition, um, whether or not you swim in the sea, whether you swim in a salt-chlorinated bath, um, swimming pool, or just a normal freshwater swimming pool. It's not going to make a huge amount of difference. Swimming, if you do vigorous swimming, is a very high level of exertion. You burn off 500 calories an hour to 700 calories an hour if you swim really, really hard. And that's going to burn a lot of energy, make you very hot, and uh, especially if the water's warm. And so you will be losing heat to the surroundings. You'll be losing water through breathing very hard to the surroundings. You may even amazingly sweat a little bit. And therefore, you're going to dehydrate anyway. But at the same time, you're burning off lots of sugars. So you're going to make lots of water inside your body. So you, you will probably end up needing a drink afterwards, but it probably won't matter what you've been swimming through up to a point. Let's go to uh, Jessica. Jessica in Santon. Good morning. Morning to you both. Um, I just wanted to ask you, I started running, um, and I think I probably pushed it too hard too quickly, and I developed shin splints. Um, and I have a friend of mine who's a chiropractor, and she said, you know, I should immediately stop running, I should rest it until they're gone. Um, and then I started running again, and I've been kind of, you know, doing it pretty slowly on a treadmill, you know, progressively picking up the, the pace and, and the time that I'm running. So my question is basically, am I going to be doing damage um, by running? It seems to be getting better. I'm strapping it, and yeah, and it seems to be getting better. So I just want to make sure I'm not going to be doing any damage. Oh, hi, Jessica. Uh, I, I had this. I used to go and do a sort of reedy clabby and do daft things like half marathons <laughs> and stuff like that. And, um, and I got this. And these shin splints, yeah. they are where the tendons insert into the periosteum, which is the tough fibrous layer around your bones. And repetitive yeah. shocks slowly, effectively tear some of the fibres at the insertion points out of the bone. And they cause a reaction underneath the periosteum to grow and repair. And that causes that bulge and swelling that you get that's also painful because whenever you damage something, you release various inflammatory chemicals one effect of which, apart from promoting repair, is to promote pain to warn you that there's a problem. Now, this is directly proportional to the level of impact that you're subjecting mm. yourself to. And so having good shoes and trying to run on surfaces that are not going to subject you to high impact is going to minimise the risk. Some people seem to be more prone to this than other people. It is a bone injury, effectively. And if you keep getting this, you, you might well be damaging yourself in the long term and you might consider doing something which is equally aerobic but lower impact. Something like, for instance, swimming. Or you could substitute some of your running to for swimming. That way you're getting the aerobic fitness but you're not subjecting your bones and skeleton to the high impact. A bit of impact exercise is really good because bones respond to impact and they thicken. Um, one of the stimuli that keeps bones strong, especially in women, this is important because um, once women go past the menopause, I'm not saying anything about your age, Jessica, but once women go past the menopause, oestrogen levels fall and oestrogen promotes bone density. And so bones do begin to thin and bone shock or impact exercise keeps bones strong. So it is a good thing to do, but up to a point. Don't overdo it. 
Yeah. And every time I go to the chemist to get something for an injury or shin splits, the, the first thing they say is all runners are stupid. You, you're injured. You just want something to make you feel better for the moment and you'll be back on the road uh, before uh, you should be back on the road. So you need to make a call, uh, uh, Jessica, when it comes to that. <laughs> When it gets addictive, it's, it just really is like that. You can't do, uh, you can't do. But, but, but Chris, is there a moment where you get used to the pain? You know, like a, if you're going to do that kind of impact es- exercise, there'll always be a niggle. At least that's what we say when you train for comrades. There's never a day where you're training and there isn't some part of the body or your legs that's a bit sore or out of, uh, uh, you know, yeah, that doesn't function normally. But you kind of get on with it, you know. <laughs> Does your body adjust? Each to their own, I think. Each to their own. But, I mean, I I think what I say, I think, is reasonable in the sense that what you're going for is, A, the enjoyment. I mean, if there's no point in doing these things, you don't enjoy them. And if it's hell to be healthy, then just don't do it. Find something that's less hell and equivalently healthy. And swimming is good because uh, swimming means that you burn off lots of calories it's also fun. It means that you don't subject your skeleton to these sorts of things and therefore you can derive health benefits and take exercise with, without True. some of the negatives. But, but equally, as I say, there is this bone growth promoting effect and therefore a little bit of, of impact exercise is good. But if you are getting symptoms, if something's beginning to really hurt, you, the usual adage with anything is if this is really yep. hurting, uh, then maybe consider your technique or change it a bit because something might be, might be off kilter. Indeed. Chris, have a lovely weekend. Chat next week. Thank you. I shall do my best. And happy Valentine's Day for the weekend, Reedy. Oh, um, oh, I, can't yes. my, my, I can't wait for my card and roses to turn up, as I, I oh. crave from you every year. Um, so I'm hoping that this year will, will, will be the, the big one. Ouch, go away. <laughs> <laughs> Take care. Bye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.